this is our last class. And so therefore, speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> and I have a questions. Another one of which was, Bob, what was it? What was the question that I wanted to ask him? Can you remember? Oh, yes. When, when an astral family invites someone to be born, are they inviting them to die on this side? <laughs> Do you get born in an astral family from other parts of the astral world? Or when somebody's, and I was sort of saying to Bob, or is it like there's some kind of like an astral bulletin board? These souls coming up for adoption, you know? <laughs> Breathing their last in the world, the planet Earth. You know, or do you just like go to an astral family for a while and then you get adopted somewhere else? And you know, who's the mommy and who's the daddy? I mean, like, how does the whole thing work? Well, I got very curious. Sometimes you're going back and forth between the astral and the causal world. Yeah. And sometimes you're going back and forth between the astral and the physical world. Yeah, it's true. Sometimes you're going interastral, interastral. So it seems. Remember that book? You recommended and then Swami said it wasn't that great, but it was interesting that you go to a certain little group yeah. that you've been with forever or something. Well, Swami negated that whole book, so it's no, it was a, it was a, it was a journey of souls, which I thought was just really terrific. I recommended it to everyone, and then I gave it, yeah, I gave it to Swami, and Swami went. Yeah, and so I just kind of slunk off with an embarrassed silence and haven't referred to it since and hoped the whole subject would die. He said it was far too, his phrase was, it was far too psychological. Everybody's just sitting around thinking about things and talking about them as if that would actually solve problems. He says that's not how it really works. So, too bad, folks. I really like that book. He gave me a really hard time about that book for many weeks. I'd actually blotted it out until you brought it up just now. He would take lots of opportunities to remind me of how much he disliked that book. So, I don't know what the lesson was, I just took it cheerfully. And then still secretly said, I really liked it, I thought it was really good. So. Well, I, I, I do ask a serious question on that book, though, because I liked it a lot myself, but what I wonder, and then clarification from Swami is, obviously all of us that meditate a lot will be in a much different vibration as far as my assumption is, is we'll be in a state where we'll basically be able to meditate a lot and we won't have to worry about going to work and things like that. And we won't be sitting there psychologically doing it. But what I wonder, as for souls that don't meditate at all, that basically are on a very material plane, I wonder if those individuals... Swamiji says, nobody learns by just sitting around and talking. Right, but is that what happens to what people are on the economy? Nobody list? learns by sitting around and talking. Therefore, a system that's based on people coming around and sitting around and talking Talk. is not going to advance them low, high, anything. In fact, even less people who are um, hooked into their delusions, even less can you talk things out. That's why Master, when he was guiding people, um, he did not talk a lot. He would give you a hint and then he would send you off to have an experience until your own experience aligned you sufficiently to understand what little bit he'd said. The whole, the whole talk theory of personal transformation is a very modern one. That, I mean, that's, that was what Swamiji was attacking primarily in that oh, book. No, right, but that wasn't the question. The question is, is people, and here's the question, if the people that don't meditate in the astral state, what do they do? Because they're not going to be... They're not, they're not conscious. That's what Sri Yukteswar says. Many people, if you don't have the subtlety, 
If you don't have the subtlety to understand consciousness without sensory experience, you're simply not conscious. You dream. And you don't really wake up again until you have a physical body. And that's also why, on another more subtle level, see, people like us have, have always had this sense that it could be better than it is here. There's just like this feeling that, you know, there's something like a little out of alignment here, something it could be better. Even from children we've had that feeling. <clears throat> and when we have the opportunity to create environments, we create environments that look like this. You know, we, we just try to make it ethereal. We might try to, try to make it uh, translucent in some way or another. Beautiful, harmonious. Like that's our concept of what the world is supposed to look like. And we conceive of these things and then are constantly trying to create beauty because we have these very strong memories uh, of that's the way things are. But there are a lot of people who, who just take, it, take this world as the world. You know, you see them and you talk to them. This is just the way things are. It doesn't even occur to them that there's another reality. And they don't necessarily, it's not even that they like it or dislike it, they just don't have a frame of reference for thinking of an alternative. And we often joke about the people who lived in our, our apartment complex before we did. You know, they were from, from some lower astral world <laughs> because the apartments were dark anyway and then all the furniture was brown and the carpets were brown and they kept the curtains drawn. It's like their image of what you did when you would create something was to just make it really dark. And you know, we were just, we were desperate to get in there and just, we were amazed that we could make the same room so different by just changing our vibrations. So such people, when they go to the astral world and things are subtle and, and made of light, they just like, nothing happens. They open their eyes and they don't see it. So they just don't open their eyes. They're just in what, I think it's described in here, it's been described elsewhere as kind of a gray dream. It was kind of a gray dream, so they don't have, they come back to this world, they don't have strong memories of that world. And they don't have also, I mean, see, all the different things that we have which make us so impatient with this world, where we just feel it can be done better, where we can imagine it and we try to make art and music and so on, so, because we, we remember it being really perfectly beautiful. Swami went so far as to say that our whole, all the Ananda communities and the energy of building them is an astral memory. He said, we've, we've had astral communities together. And that's why it's so easy for us to make a community. You know, you see some people come together. Years ago, um, Swami will tell this story like it was three or four years ago. It was probably like 20, 24 years ago now or something like that. I, well, I knew David. It was about 22 years ago. I was invited up to a, a representative Nanda at a conference in Oregon on communities. And... I mean, I never really thought about this, what I'm about to say until just now. But uh, there were two things that were interesting. One was that nobody cared at all about Ananda. This is like a big conference on communities. And I, nobody cared. I had this whole slideshow. We were doing this incredible thing. Almost nobody was doing anything except us and Findhorn. Nobody would listen to me at all. I finally said to Peter Caddy, who was the founder of Findhorn and was still alive then, obviously, because I spoke to him. I said, Peter, why don't they care about us? Why are they so interested in you? Why don't they care about us? And he said, well, Findhorn promises them heaven on earth. He said, and you promised them that they can transcend earth and go to heaven. He said, nobody's really interested. I thought it was very astute. It was exactly true. We said, you're going to have to repudiate this and go somewhere else. But they, and so they couldn't see me. They just really couldn't see me. I never got to make any presentations. But also, 
and this is the part I was going to comment on, you know, we had this one whole evening devoted to these eight people who had bought some land and were going to make a community on it. And they were talking about these incredibly laborious processes that they were going to go through, you know, to decide where the roads were going to go or the buildings were going to go. And, and I just realized now, I mean, they've never been a community before. So in order to decide anything, they had to just like do all this stuff. And, and, and uh, it would take them years, if they ever did it at all, to just decide perfectly where the road should go with all of this elaborate... People often ask us at Ananda, how do you do things? And we just sort of say, well, we just sort of do. You know, we just kind of decide. And it just works because we're in tune with each other. And when we're in tune with each other for many, many lifetimes, and I think also being in the astral world where the attunement was just understood. There was just a shared vision, and we kind of just go forward and manifest it. And we all came down together, Swamiji said, to manifest it again. And, you know, it's, it's gotten even more subtle than that because, you know, each of our different colonies has a kind of core group of its own little, little form. There used to be just one group. But now we've made all these subsequent little karmic families in all these various places of people who are born to do that, in tune with that particular one. Not necessarily forever, but just part of making that one happen. And still, what's been fascinating to me is that when we moved from Ananda Village and started here, it came out just the same. And of course it doesn't look the same, but the vibration came out just the same. The methods came out just the same. The flow came out just the same. I didn't know that it would. But it, it's sort of like it had to. It was the only flavor in the tube, you know. It just kind of came out like that. <laughs> but I think it was an astral world memory. And we do it in kind of an astral way. We kind of sense it. We kind of visualize it. We just kind of feel it. And then we apply will more than anything else. We don't have business plans. We don't have that much system. We just apply will to it until it manifests. Is that fair? Is that true? So we're not so far away from the outside world. It's just that everything here takes, look, forever. You know, and it's made of this huge, this huge, heavy thing here. This is all this stuff which is taking you forever to get up, all this wood and everything, which is just the underpinning for another huge, heavy piece of wood, is all designed to deliver two lines of illuminated type. I mean, that's all, this whole thing, you're gonna, we're going to do this whole thing, and after it's all done, it won't be anything except two lines of illuminated type, if we're lucky, Right? But that's what it takes on this plane. Otherwise, we could just go, you know, and there it would be. We'd all just look at it, we'd enjoy our temple, and then we'd dematerialize it. I remember so seriously. Practically the first day I came to Ananda, somebody said to me, well, you know, Swami Kriyananda gets very impatient with things on this plane because he lived in the astral world for so long. <laughs> it was just one of those things that just has always stayed in my mind. The person said it to me just like that, like they were telling me a little secret, so that now I would know. Is that true? Does he get impatient? Um, no, actually, he has more patience than anyone I know. But uh, he does have an expectation that a great deal, what she was really saying, because I also know her temperament, is that he just has an expectation that you can manifest your dream. You have a visualization and you make it happen, which of course now, I mean that was 30 years ago that was said to me, 31 years ago. So there was a lot of manifesting that was going to happen in between. You said it. <laughs> Exhibit A. I mean, he just, he needs more. What she was saying is that if he, if he ever appears to run out of patience, it's only because we tax it so much. 
<laughs> By the time he's run out, he's spent 500 times more than the average person ever had in the first place. <laughs> All right. Is there any other questions or comments? I mean, do we, yeah? Where do the seeds of awakening... Oh, they, they take place... First, you have to... Well, if you're not awake and you can only be aware in the physical world, then obviously the learning has to take place in the physical world because you can't perceive any other reality. I mean, it, it's very important. The astral world gives us a picture. The vibrations are homogeneous in the astral world. And that's one of the great, lovely things about it, which is one of the reasons that makes us so also uncomfortable here, which is, why do we have to share the planet with... You know, this, because in the astral world we don't. In the astral world we get to just be with our own. That's why the first years of Ananda Village up in Nevada City, first 10, 12 years, when we were very isolated. I mean, we had a meditation retreat, but our advertising was so ineffective. No one hardly ever came, and it was just wonderful. You know, <laughs> it was just very small. And... Uh, was we were very Indian. We just we just made a fantasy world essentially. It was heaven. It was just really. It was just like being in the astral world. What did you What did you ever want from there? We were very very primitive, but who cared? I just have this you know mental picture of walking barefoot in these little uh, dirt, dusty tracks. You felt like you were in some idyllic Indian village. What was the point of that? Oh, but there was nothing. It was just us. You know, it was like it was like an astral world because it was a very homogeneous vibration. There was very little negativity penetrating you know one or two people who still are tormenting us you know <laughs> came in and, and uh, didn't like the game and took all their marbles and went home you know just some bad sports were there that are still tormenting us but mostly it was just one vibration and it was just like the astral world now let's see oh but uh, the thing is you can, you can only see what you can see um, not in this chapter, but in, in other books that I've read about the astral world, which seem true to me, when he talks about how that dark, dark souls can't rise into higher spheres, but high, uh, lighter souls can come down to help darker, darker spheres. And I, I saw, heard a description once of just a really dark world where everybody was really self-involved and depressed, and the light beings were right on the edges trying to reach them. And they just didn't know that the light was there. I mean, that's just what it's like now. You know, the light beings are all around us and when we get depressed and sad, we just don't know that they're there trying to help us. So we have to just go through, we have to go through enough suffering on whatever level we suffer on until we are willing to let, until it cracks our preconceptions. You know, see, ego is everything. We just, we have this thought, this is the way it is. I know what's true. This is what those people are like. This is what's happened to me. This is the way I can make it work. This is what I have to do. And we have to fail over and over and over and over again in our idea of how it's going to work until we get the humility to wonder what's going on. That is exactly what the story of the bird is in the Festival of Light, is that we're sent out with God's um, instruction to be expansive, to be fruitful, to multiply, to share with all. But we start getting experiences and we start thinking, no, I don't think that's the right way. I'm just going to, what else is wisdom except to keep what is mine for myself, whether that's my ideas or my money or my whatever, but we hoard in like this. And then it says, nor did wisdom come to him 
when repeatedly he lost everything he had. I mean, there's just so much, um, millions of years of anguish in that. And so what happens, I mean, that, that kind of loss is you're born, you have all these ideas about how it's going to work out, you're going to have your own little plot of land and you're going to farm it, you're going to have your little family and you struggle, struggle, struggle and it doesn't work out and you die disappointed. You know, you lost it all. But then the next time you think, well, I just didn't try hard enough. I didn't have the right wife and all that stuff. And so you try and try and try and try again to do it and repeat it and you die again. It didn't make it, you know. Or maybe you die young or whatever, but it just keeps over and over and over until finally just this thought penetrates. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. You know, maybe somehow it's me. And then that's the beginning of the quest. That's the beginning of the thing. Instead of just saying, I know what's right. We say instead, what is going on here? And, and when a soul evolves, you know, through all the levels of material development to the point where it's lost enough times, it begins to say, what's going on here? And as soon as you begin to ask that question, then perceptions begin to come to you as soon as you have the humility. And it's the same right now. I mean, we oscillate between the revolt and the quest all the time. You know, sometimes we're genuinely receptive and really want to know, and sometimes we just want to defend our position. Every time we're just defending our position, we're in the revolt, like the little bird, and we're just setting ourselves up to lose everything we have. But I guess you reach a point, this is what Sri Yukteswar tells us, where you're refined enough that you can learn on both sides. You know, you can learn here, and then you can go to the astral world, and we're subtle enough that we enjoy the freedom. It's a different kind of lesson when you have that kind of freedom. You know, things are um, less confused and more subtle. And you get, you get to practice a different kind of reality. Sometimes I think you actually practice what you're going to do the next time. You know, you learn music or you learn dance or you refine your science or whatever it is that you're really interested in. You get a much more subtle appreciation of it, just like people will be born with a kind of artistic idea of what they're going to create. And again, it's like you remember it. And you just come and you're just really determined to make it happen again. And that's because of all the years, I mean, us living together in a community in the astral world, just refining many of our spiritual understandings, getting them very subtle. And then Yogananda says, I'm going, who's coming? Swami said, I am. And we said, oh gosh, I guess that means us. <laughs> and then we just all swoop down and just are here doing this again with, with a memory of what it's supposed to be like and simultaneously working out our own karma doing it and then when we finish you know, in other words when our particular little sequence here is done then we go off to the astral world again and we get to learn more subtle lessons it's just very different realities in different places it's quite something to think about yes, Rick? Uh, in this chapter um, taking that on and on, <clears throat> eventually we no longer have any karma that needs to be worked out in the physical plane. Uh, this is a, uh, at least he speaks of that as sort of generalities, that this happens to many, if not all souls. Ultimately, everyone. Yeah. And then, uh, then there can be a little bit of a um, dialectic between the astral world and the causal world. Right. And, forth, and eventually, you have no more astral karma and it's causal alone and finally you merge into the infinite. Right. The question I have is what do, do, do people mean when they talk about 
being fully realized in this lifetime here on the planet? Well, if you're fully realized, if you're fully realized, you have shed physical, astral, and causal. Right. And so that would, nothing less than that could be called fully liberated. I think so. Yeah. So in which case, um, uh, assuming that prior to such liberation, you did indeed have some karma that must have been worked out on this planet, namely in the physical plane, you can work off, off that physical karma. Uh, well, actually, I'm not sure, Rick, because you might have come to this planet to serve others. True. For no karma of your own. Yeah, and so I, I would, you wouldn't be able to say that. What about us? I mean, let's assume that all of us are, uh -huh. uh, have karma to work out on this planet. Right, a fair assumption. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it not also true that, um, that um, we, we all can at least hope um, uh, that we could become fully realized in this lifetime? I, I, every time I read these, I like to think secretly, you know, Maybe I'm really one of those who's just pretending. <laughs> well, I always like I always like to think about it. I always think about it. That's Who knows? Great, yeah. Who knows? Don't don't don't. Uh, no, no. I I actually I think to myself. Who knows? Right. You know my my feeling about it is. Can, it, you, make, can you make the leap out of uh, from this incarnation all the way out? Well, yes, of course. So you don't have to go through the progression of. Uh, Burning up all your no, but, Rick, it, it, but it would, it, you're, you're being too mechanical about it. If you're able to do it, it's because you have almost nothing left. Huh. It's not like you work extra hard and sort of shovel out a super big load. It would, no, I mean, seriously, it would be like you no, just not, would, you would just be, that. yeah, it would just be that if you have that capability, it's inherent within you. But, but the other point is there's a, now this is partly my own way of thinking. It's like, how can we possibly know? And the mere thought of concentrating too much on that thought, or even trying to figure that out, feels that it warps the process. Now, maybe that's not what you're asking me, but I don't know how you can measure it. I feel like if, I mean, Swamiji had his guru tell him, you know, you will be liberated in this lifetime, but not till the end of your life and you have to work hard. Now, that definitely has been an incentive for Swamiji to work hard, because Master said, work hard and you'll be free. Um, and some of us but the same advice applies to all of us work hard and we'll be free whether we'll be fully liberated in this lifetime or not um, is impossible to answer and also it's just impossible to calibrate you know I have my friend Paula whom Swami just made the comment that he thought that she might have been completely free and he said something very similar about David Hogendijk. He might have said it less equivocally than I just said it. He said, I believe about Paula that she was freed. You know, Paula was just a, just a gal. <laughs> I mean, an absolute pure soul. She was a complete angel. She had the sweetest nature of anyone I've ever known, except for perhaps Kirtani, who matches her. But, you know, she was just totally good. But, uh, I mean, she had to file bankruptcy. She couldn't handle her own money. You know, she had so many clothes and earrings and shoes that, you know, when her husband started clearing it out, he just couldn't believe it, you know, just boxes and boxes and, you know, so there were lots of funny things. How do you measure all that? But her purity of heart was just total. And when it came time to die, she just, just let go of everything. I, I think that's wonderful. And I, I share the, uh, fervently the same possibility. I don't shut anything up. Um, but I'm just curious about when Sri Yukteswar is, is basically 
describing um, from a bird's eye point of view sort of a general progression of souls through the worlds, uh, which ultimately ends in liberation once, when one is freed in his context from the causal plane. Why doesn't he ever mention the possibility of uh, leaving out at any point? I don't know. Okay. I was kind of curious that he didn't uh, do that. You know. he gets out the because door. I think it would be utterly confusing to people and would completely feed people's egos and mix the heck out of them, that's why. Because it's just the same way that I sort of resist the whole conversation too. Because as soon as somebody starts thinking about it, they start binding themselves with their egos. You know, because it's like, oh, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it, I'm going to try, I'm going to make it, I'm going to try, I'm going to try, try hard, I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. But the operative word is I. You know, it's like the very nature of that is... Now, see, it's a very fine line. Because on one hand, it's a desireless desire, but on the other hand... Um, concern with it becomes an ego concern because it's self-concern you know it's it's one loses spiritual development is self-forgetfulness I mean it's, it's just a very it's a very important concept it's self-forgetfulness self-realization is self-forgetfulness is that you cease to exist so there's no self to be wondering whether it's going to be liberated and if, if a soul sits around and wonders if it's going to be liberated, almost that very wondering is a sign that it's not, in, in, a, in a certain way. Do you understand what I mean? Is, isn't it okay to... Um, I really don't feel personally involved in the question. Perhaps I am, but I don't at all feel that way. I find it just fascinating. And, uh, well, I do too. I mean, from that point of view, yeah. in the sense that we can be freed, but... Um, it's also distracting. I'm not talking to you. I'm saying it can be distracting. I see it. I see it a lot of times as being distracting to people. Yes. Is, is it what you're saying? Is it like um, we're our motivation isn't pure if we're doing what we're doing just to get out? Or do, I mean, even though I'm just saying, self self concern is the opposite of self realization. It's just as, it's as simple as that. Now, you know, you can be quite aware of your freedom and you're not self-concerned. Self-concern is the opposite of self-realization. That's just how I can phrase it. People can say the same things from very different points of view. Depends on who they are and what they mean. It's, it seems like it's kind of paraphrasing what Rabia said, that you're, you're going to love God as much as you can and serve God as well as you can and if you have to come back you're willing to do that you come back joyously because you're not concerned about yourself yeah. you're just doing that which is God's will and I mean Swamiji says that the Jivan Mukta has a little bit of karma that could be dissolved at any point if the Jivan Mukta focused on dissolving it but they use that little bit of karma to bring them back to this world over and over so they can help people. To me, that's more inspiring. Well, they're sort of like... I've heard it said that souls kind of develop in one of two directions. Either they develop more and more towards solitude or they develop towards service. And if you've just sort of developed on the service model, then that's just kind of the way you keep going. And, and you're just service-oriented. I mean, but that's your liberation, is your expansion of consciousness into the concerns of others. But Swamiji said something interesting lately. Let's see, where did he say it? 
It was just some letter that I wrote. Oh, it was having to do with after the Bertolucci trial. And it was just a very interesting thought. He said, one thing this has done for me, he said, is really um, just uh, awoken me from a dream I had that you could actually really uplift everyone. You know, he said, I just sort of had this thought that everyone could be uplifted. And now I realize that some people just can't. And you know, you just, I have, I have to give up this thought that I could reach everyone. I can't reach everyone. Someone will not be reached. And it's very interesting because Swamiji's passion for writing this little book and this little one and this little one, and, and he gets so excited about how this one's going to reach this particular audience and this one's going to reach this audience. And it wasn't until I read that I realized he's just been trying to reach everyone. You know, everyone can understand this if I just say it in the right way. But that's just that very, um, that's just his way. Uh, he, he sort of feels like he's done it. He's not really anxious to come back and do it again. Uh, but I'm sure if God asked him, he would. Cyrus. Um, both Yogananda's identity as being an Indian, uh-huh. and on one hand, the actual practices that he brought, you know, there's so many English charts, not very many Sanskrit ones. Um, but on the, on the other, the book is so full of he takes every opportunity to talk about India's history and the music and the culture, and there's this sort of you know, non-egoic pride in that. And I'm wondering if, if there's some sort of message as to how we all approach our own ethnicities as we were born, as far as attachment to it or not. Well, his mission was to awaken the West to the greatness of India because the, the Dwapar Yuga is the unity of India and America. America is the new country, India is the old tradition, and that's the two go together. India has been uh, ordained by God to sustain Sanatan Dharma through this whole dark age. You know, they've held it. There's still a spiritual culture, a degenerate one and a confused one, but the fundamental culture is still Sanatan Dharma in India. And... Uh, and it's held the lamp when, when the lamp's gone out pretty much everywhere else. So there's a real uh, divine leela happening where that which is India and that which is America have a destiny together. That's what Yogananda says many, in many times in many places. They have a joint destiny. So he's talking much less about it being his place of origin is that he was born there for a purpose and proclaiming the greatness of that culture to this culture and the greatness of this culture to that culture is really his job. Um, at the same time, you know, the advice about um, ethnicity is pretty much the chapter that I forgot to deal with last week when Sri Yukteswar sends Yogananda to America and he says, you know, forget that you were an Indian, but don't become an American. Just take the best of all cultures and combine that and make yourself you know, the ideal man. So that's really the best way to relate to, to our point of origin or our, our adopted culture is uh, just consider it all to be grist for the mill and just look to see what each one has to offer and adopt it. Swamiji makes, made a comment many years ago before I had much international experience. He said that you could walk around and just tell what, pe- what country people were from, which to me was just like uh, speaking magic because I'd never been out of the U.S. I didn't know. And so, but it is sort of a game. You can sit around in international arenas 
And even without hearing language, you can often, not always, but often tell where people are from. I mean, Americans are easy to spot. In fact, the State Department in saying, I think this was from the State Department, in warning Americans about traveling around, they said Americans can be spotted everywhere because they walk around the world in white athletic shoes. (laughs) White athletic shoes. And it's true, everybody goes shopping and they go get their white athletic shoes and then they go marching to you know, Borneo or London or wherever it is, and that, that's how they can be spotted, is because they're walking around those ugly white shoes. Yeah? I had a funny experience in Costa Rica. My husband and I were sitting in a restaurant, and there was a group of people sitting behind Some of them, I think, were English and some were Americans, and some were Costa Ricans. And when they finished eating, they stood up next to us. My husband is deaf and white, and we were signing and so on and so forth. So we looked a little bit different. A little bit. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> they came up to the table and said, we have... We were having a discussion with guys either from New York or California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. California. yeah. But it's, it's just true because you show. But what I was going to say, the second point of this that Swamiji put out was, he said, and, but then sometimes you meet people and you have no idea where they're from. Because the, he said they are so truly themselves that you just can't tell. They have no, they have no cultural bias. They're just their own person. It's a very, um, it was a very astute comment, and so that's, I think, the best way to relate to it. Of course, you know, you and Sharon and others don't, can't always escape so easily as some of the rest of us more neutral-looking people. <laughs> Brenda, you, there's sort of a clues. Clues are offered as to where you might be from, but uh, nonetheless, you can still make your consciousness such that people just still can't tell. It was interesting when speaking of black people when Ram, um, who's a black man, went to Nigeria they still use the word for him that means white man because he was just so American that he was so clearly not African the fact that he was dark just didn't even begin to make him an African. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's true. Well, there's something about that. When I lived in Texas, people used to think I was from Boston because I always talked funny. I wasn't in East Texas. I wasn't in East Texas. I wasn't in, the, I wasn't in Dallas. I was in El Paso. But I just didn't sound like anybody around me. Swamiji himself says that he, he simply speaks English the way he thinks it ought to be spoken. <laughs> you know, and that's sort of the same. It's like, I'm just going to be myself in this setting. And when you read, you know, these stories like this about in and out of the astral world and back and forth here, and you just think, oh, it's all so ephemeral. What difference does it make? You know, what country, what race, what gender? And that's the consciousness that gradually causes you to live in this world very, very differently. I had just that perception of um, the renunciate consciousness. Um, I, there was a period of time in my life before David entered the scene where I lived as a renunciate. You know, I was unmarried, I didn't plan to marry, no children, very few possessions. And, but you can just see, it's like, why would you come here and acquire anything? You know, why would you acquire relationships? Why would you make all these involvements? Why would you make children? And just all these things that just sort of wrap you up in all these specifics. And, and, you, and it's not, I mean, all of us have done all of that. That's just our, our karma to do so. But you can kind of just step back a little bit. Not from the point of view, I mean, sometimes people who float on this planet 
camp is the word I use, who are camping here, are not really free. They just don't have, they, they, they ha you can feel in them that there's a deep desire to be engaged, but they haven't been able to get engaged. And you see, that's very different. That's like somehow you're going to have to figure out how to connect with people and make it happen. But there's a true renunciate that just says, you know, I'm going to go back to the outer world and it's just all going to be an even field of love. Why do I want to tie myself up in all these specific identities this time? You can just, see, you can sort of, it's very powerful to meditate on just what's written here of just, I go to the astral world and then it's all fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, friends. And they have that wonderful quote from the Buddha that you have to love everyone equally because everyone has been equally dear to you. And then you think, I love you and I hate you and I particularly like this one and I don't get along with that one. And you think, what am I doing? Why am I dividing it all up? Why don't I just accept it? And um, Sri Yukteswar, I mean, somewhere in here, they just talk about how deeply we identify with this physical body. You know, what, what binds us here is just we've become so engaged in it. And what would our lives be like if we were less engaged in it? You know, if we, if we didn't need to eat so much or sleep so much. I mean, that's where the masters get. They just, master tells the story of how Sri Yukteswar cured him of, of being tired and cured him of being hungry. And, and what, what he's doing is just breaking that sense of identity. That's, those are just physical imperatives. And the only reason we're bound by them is we, we just have allowed ourselves to be bound by them. We've, we've identified so deeply with the physical vehicle that we are no longer able to do things unless it cooperates with us. And, you know, you see someone like Swamiji who... He, I mean, he tells us these stories and he tells us for good reason. Remember the year, whatever it was, when he had so many physical problems and simultaneously accomplished so much. And he stood in this temple and he wrote a long letter and he just lists all his ailments, which were, I don't even remember, but I think it was the year of the heart operation and the year of twice or three times losing most of his blood for one reason or another. And just all these different things that happened. And then he made this incredible list of all that he'd accomplished. Because he just, the physical body wasn't the vehicle through which he functioned. And he'll just, he'll call and he'll say, oh, I'm just so tired, I can hardly, I just don't know what's wrong, I can hardly move. Well, you'll get chapter 16 on email today, I finished it, you know, and you read it and it's just stunningly brilliant and he's telling you that he can hardly open his eyes. It's because the identity is not strong there. The body is sort of doing something but the, the self is disidentified with it, so it goes on no matter what the body's doing. Now, interestingly, he says recently that it doesn't work anymore. He can no longer override the physical body with his willpower because the physical body's too broken. And if he overrides it and just pushes it, it, it just it collapses on itself now in ways that it never did before when he was younger. But nonetheless, there's the... Master says when you're raising children, he says, don't coddle them too much. You know, don't always put a sweater on them when it's a little cold. Don't always give them something to eat when they're hungry. He's not saying to torture them by any means. But what he's saying is don't, don't make them think that every time there's some little variation in the physical world, they have to respond to it. You know, teach them to be a little bit detached from it, a little more stoic. It's fine. You don't have to eat. You'll be okay. I mean, that's a delicate thing, but it's, but it's you see the point? That's why we teach, treat ourselves that way. That's why people do incredible tapasya. 
where they don't eat or they don't drink or they don't lie down or they're very strict in their diet or they just eat nettles or whatever it is, um, it's because, and they don't uh, subsequently collapse under it either. They use it as a way to, to, to persuade the mind by the power of the will and the power of the spirit that I don't have to be um, bound by this because this isn't me. There's another force. Now, that's a delicate line with common sense, but not an unimportant one. Any comments or thoughts? That's sort of a funny thought. Um, when we were talking about disidentifying, well, I'm wondering if there's a stage uh, before completely disidentifying the body where I'm thinking of certain athletes that seem to transcend I mean, you know, really, really, really great athletes who are incredible ballet dancers or something, who seem to have reached a level where they're not bound in the same way that we are. Um, Nijinsky could stop in midair and then come down slowly. And when people asked him how he could do that, he said, well, it's in the breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that's like a, a stage of a great soul? I think anything that you... Any, I mean, that's why you can't escape from this planet by being mediocre at things. You know, if you, it, the, the willpower required for excellence is the same willpower that you'll eventually use for God realization. So if you worship athletic performance, what you have really developed is concentration, determination, willpower, transcendence of physical limitations, concentration, discipline. You know, you've just done all those things and you just finish it and then move on. And some people who, um, you know, press to those extreme experiences, those extreme physical experiences, are really looking for transcendence. They just don't know how to get it, or that's how they get it. I'm reading um, books about uh, mountain climbers, Himalayan climbers and ice climbers, and um, John Krakauer, who wrote the book Into Thin Air, Krakauer. Um, or David Brashears, that was the other book I read. David Brashears was the cameraman in, on the IMAX crew on the Himalayan, that, that Himalayan season when so many people died and then they made the IMAX film of all that disaster. He was the cameraman or the producer. And I read his biography and you really realize the difference between the people who pay to climb up Everest and the people who are real mountain climbers. You know, there, there's a whole subculture, which of course, unless you happen to be part of it, you don't know anything about it where there's a subculture of people who just do these crazy things with their bodies. Um, and they talked about ice climbing, where there's these pillars of ice, these places in, some place in Alaska has a whole bunch of these pillars, you know, like five, six stories straight up, and people just climb them because people are crazy. But they... <laughs> but but the, the, the men who really did it, and a few women, but I was reading stories of men, of course, what they go into is a, is a transcendental state because they're just, you know, pinned on this pinnacle of ice and absolutely nothing can exist except exactly where they are. And that's why they keep going back and doing it because that experience is so thrilling that when they come down to ordinary life, they can't, they don't know what they're really looking for, so they have to go back into these extreme circumstances to just bring them to an absolute focus. So, you know, once, once you get that, they'll, they'll gradually figure out, like you asked the question, they'll gradually figure out that um, 
what they're really experiencing is a change of consciousness. And then they'll, figure, they'll try to figure out how to get that change of consciousness. And it will lead progressively, even quickly, to spiritual study because they'll recognize this extreme detachment to everything because nothing matters except that consciousness. And even already, you know, that subculture, many of them live quite without regard for any of the normal things because that transcendental experience defines everything. So, you know, you don't sneer at your own desires or your own desires for excellence or people's just because they're pursuing one thing doesn't mean they're not really quite advanced. They just haven't... They'll, they'll make very fast progress when they turn over to something else. That's why, like, one artist, one person who's good in one form of art can often be good in many because they just know how to discipline. I'm going to decide to do this now and I'll just do it. Any other questions or thoughts? I don't want to not talk in this chapter about the fact that he talks about mermaids and leprechauns and fairies. That, I, I mean, the first time I read this, that book, that sentence just stayed so much in my mind. I mean, it's just, just a very simple, total verification of the fact that there's all these other... The way Swami described it once is all these other lines, lineages of development. You know, like you just sort of reach a certain point and instead of going toward human you become a leprechaun or you become a mermaid that was the one that just got me the most mermaids you know there really are mermaids and they must be somewhere on this planet too because there's so many legends about them but why I, I just I, I've lain awake at night for many years thinking about mermaids you know just the fact that they exist and that they're somewhere isn't, isn't it strange and so a lot of the things where people cite those things must really be they just sort of transcend and they go into that other plane because they're not quite physical. They're just sort of half here and half somewhere else. And there's, you know, there's books and you don't know whether they're hoaxes or not of people who, uh, there's a whole book of a woman in England who was going around for a while. You know, she just kind of lived out in some little cottage and she just had a leprechaun as a friend and the leprechaun would come and uh, it's just so, oh, this world is not what it seems at all. Yeah, we remember that, or no, but they're really happening there. And so people will hear, um, get tuned into that wavelength and then just live with that wavelength. And the same, you know, with people on other planets and everything, the whole, we're, we're just so narrow. There's so much more to be known than we know. And that's why, you know, cultures who are in tune with nature pay a lot of attention to that. Findhorn was a good example. You know, they really cultivated a relationship with that whole, the, all the nature forces and, and got nature to cooperate with them in a very different ways. And, and you can also see how we're, by the way we're living, these, this, the West especially, you know, we're, we're, we're driving all those beings off of our earth. We're, we're making our, our world inaccessible to them and a tremendous amount of richness and harmony and because those beings have a lot to do with the vibrancy of of our planet. They, they create that life force that you feel. You know, you go to certain forests. I remember going to, um, is, it, is the island called Chinook up in Seattle? Is that the island or is that just a town? There's an island up there uh, off of Seattle. Uh, there's a community called Chinook. So I, that maybe that's not the name of the island, but, pardon me? No, it's not Bainbridge. It's one of the more obscure ones. But, um, it just felt like a forest in which the fairies were still living. 
you know, and that was sort of a focus of the community. You just kind of walked into that forest and you could tell that there was other consciousness living in there. It was not just a human place. It had a very, very different feel. It was sort of like a little Swamiji, a little island of it. Swamiji described Hawaii like that. He said, in Hawaii, the nature devas are much more active, especially on the less, and this was a number of years ago. I don't know what it's like now. But you could just feel that the, the veil between the physical and the astral world in Hawaii was thinner. There was just more, more of that force was coming through and it made nature just uh, tangibly more alive than it felt in other places. And you, you walk around so many of our cities and you can just feel there's just nothing there but us. <laughs> it's, it's very much emptier because of that. Very interesting, huh? It's also true, you know, just with this whole astral world, is that they're just so... Um, they're with us. By intuition, the astral beings can perceive this planet. That's what Sri Yukteswar says. You know, by intuition, they can perceive us, which means that by intuition, we can perceive them. And so friends and angel, angelic beings and departed loved ones. And, and there is a great um, helping force uh, he describes here about these causal beings contemplating certain problems of cosmic government. Right? I mean, that was... I mean, what kind of problems of cosmic government? It's got to involve conscious beings. I mean, you don't have to govern buildings or file cabinets. You know, it's all of us. And so these high beings who are working out these conscious problems of cosmic government, I mean, these are our planets. That, that they're being run from these higher levels. And so the more, we always talk about what's trying to happen and tuning in. Well, we're really tuning in up a, a very tangible ladder of, of, of uh, focused consciousness. You know, there really are, Swamiji often says this, just as it's all organized here with the mayor of Palo Alto and the planning board and all these different things, it just keeps being organized except on more and more subtle levels and the forces are more and more subtle. You know, you don't have to go to the astral planning department and get the permit signed off. (laughs) But we can either cooperate with what's trying to come through on a higher level or we can block it out and just do it our way. And it isn't just a question of the gurus, it's the whole flow. It's like we can be an instrument for things that are trying to happen on this planet or they can find someone else to do it. And it won't be us, you know. Haven't you, sometimes you just get ideas and you just know that things need to happen. And when you get into that flow, you just go with whatever little world we're all in. We're all in very little worlds, but each, each little world, if it runs harmoniously, then the whole place runs harmoniously. Master wrote after the Second World War, or during the Second World War, he was tying, it's an article, I have to try to find it again, but he was tying an influenza epidemic in Spain and bad weather in Los Angeles with bombing that was taking place in Germany and uh, something in South America. He was just talking about how all of these forces are so interrelated and negative energy here creates uh, earthquakes over here and selfish consciousness here creates drought over here. And it really made you feel just that the world works so differently then we think it works. And that doesn't even take into account this whole other dimension where we go to all the time. And the most important thing, and this is what Sri Yukteswar just really says, you know, Yogananda, tell everyone, tell all. Because 
the fear and the misunderstanding about death is really the defining force in so many people's lives. And when you really see it differently, if you really, if you really understand the continuation of your consciousness, everything changes on so many different levels. I mean, not the least of which is you cease looking for a way to avoid it. You know, there's just no way to avoid whatever it is that you have to face. I, I was talking to someone who wasn't seriously suicidal but was very depressed and was thinking, of, you know, just talking about wanting to die. And my response was, well, it would be fine except it won't work, you know? I can understand your desire but it, it, won't, it won't accomplish anything. You'll just be dead, that's all. You'll just be in the astral world and you will be exactly what you are, you know? And it's very important to just very, very deeply cognize that. There's just no way to be free except to become free. You just, you can die as many times as you like. You're just going to be exactly the same. You know, astral, causal, this one, the next one. You just have to right here in this moment um, be your best. You know, that's why, Rick, when we were trying to have this conversation a few moments ago, it's like, my mind immediately goes to the practical, which wasn't what you were asking me at all. But my thinking is always, moment by moment, you're not going to try any less or more. You're just going to do the best you can do. And whatever the consequences of that are, the most important thing is to, just, is to be able to motivate yourself right here to do it. Whatever works. And if it's the thought of getting liberated in this lifetime, that's great. But the main thought is, just moment by moment, to get over that... Um, possibility of alternative. I can phrase it like that. Let's take a short break. Let's take maybe 10 minutes and then we'll finish up. So, let's see. I was about saying something that I wanted to talk about. Now I don't remember. Any other comments or questions? Or One of the things that strikes you in this chapter is this whole cycle of Yogananda's grief over, over Sri Yukteswar's dying. Somebody told me as if it were true, and I don't know if it's true, that one of the reasons that, you know, when Sri Yukteswar had gone into his Mahasamadhi and Richard Wright and Master showed up there, Richard Wright was running a movie projector. And they have movies. The picture that you've seen sometimes of the group of disciples sitting around Sri Yukteswar's empty body, you know, his dead body, um, that's apparently a, a cut out of the video, the movie film. And so they have movies of that whole cycle. Um, and somebody said that somebody said that one of the reasons that SRF doesn't like it, doesn't want to put that movie out is that Master was visibly upset at the death of his guru. He was visibly upset at the death of his guru, and this doesn't fit the image that they like to put forward. But it's interesting because, of course, it's betrayed here because Master was, um, and, and elsewhere, I, I thought it was an autobiography, but I guess it's elsewhere that one of the reasons Master delayed his trip back to the U.S. is because his, his Sri Yukteswar had died and he didn't want to go back. I mean, he just, you know, didn't want to go on business as usual. His Master had died. There's also this hint in here, you know, that Yogananda, Sri Yukteswar says that they, he will never, that, our, um, that his stern role is over. I shall chide you no more. You and I shall smile together so long as our two forms appear different in the Maya dream of God. Finally, we shall merge as one in the cosmic beloved. 
Um, Swamiji says that, you know, because Babaji was really master's guru, and I proposed this at the beginning class, the Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda were soulmates in a divine sense. And Swamiji says that master talked about it once or twice, that there really is such a thing as, you know, when you come out from the infinite, everything comes out dual. Why would we not have come out dual and have a, a partner? But it's not... I've said this in here, I remember saying it, that Master said he, he, Master never talked about it because everyone would immediately return it romantic and sexual. But it was just wasn't on that level at all. But this statement of Sri Yukteswar's is a very interesting one because it really does describe as if they were half-souls and that when they finally merge back, then they'll merge back together. And that my stern role is over, I'm not, I'm not going to play that role anymore with you that you and I are just going to be as we've always been one. I, who can say? I don't know how to even begin to think about it, but because Swamiji has said it, when, when Master came as an avatar, uh, he was already an avatar and he came as William the Conqueror, uh, Sri Yukteswar came with him as Lanfranc, who was the monk and the archbishop. And he sort of was, he played, they played a partnership role and they came together and um, he, he played a role in his life um, at that time, too, they sort of did this project together, and this time they came in this form to do it. When we were in England um, a number of years ago, a group of us went to England with Swamiji. Matthew Sloan was living in Assisi at that time, and we persuaded him to come back to England because we said, otherwise we'll have to drive on the left side of the road and we'll get killed and it'll be your fault. <laughs> so he came, he, his, his mom gave him a ticket to England, and he met us and then chauffeured us around and we went to um, Canterbury and that's where Lanfranc had been the Archbishop of Canterbury. Do I have that correct? Yeah, anyway. But we were there and there was this, it's a huge, gigantic church and there was a mass going on, a, a, it's an Anglican mass and um, we got shunted over into this little side thing. I mean, you know, this is a huge place and we're over here for the mass and they had lots of different priests when it came time to give the communion. And so we got up and we were going to the communion rail, which is over in this little tiny place. And I was, you know, just like this. And we were, several of us were just right there and we were thinking, I wonder if, we heard that Lanfranc was buried there. We was like, this taking the communion rail. I wonder where Lanfranc is. We opened our eyes and we were right in front of his burial stone. Yeah, I and mean, it was just incredible that we just, God had led us right there. And then it hit, and then on the wall there was a signature. He'd scratched a signature on the stone. But you just sort of have this partnership between these two avatars, because that whole incarnation of William was, you know, it set the tone for 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 America, because it 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 brought the uh, it unified, it created the English system and the English system, and then Kriyananda was Henry, and he created all the laws and the whole system of law and government that lasted all those years, which was what we took and brought over to America. I mean, what do you think those causal beings are doing working out these problems of cosmic government? You know, there's just this whole enormously long cycle. And when Babaji's promised to stay with us, he's working on these very long rhythms. In this context, I said to Swamiji, well, it must have been disciples of this path. George Washington and all the signers of the Declaration of Independence, who else could they have been? If, if Dwapara Yuga, if America has such an important role to play in Dwapara Yuga, 
And Yogananda is such an important figure in the setting the right course of the spiritual side, they couldn't have just left it to others to get the whole country going, especially when you see Master back there as William. And I, no, no, but I, no, I asked him. I thought of it just one Sunday, and, I, and Swami's answer was simply, well, of course. It seems probable. You know, they were very spiritual souls. Uh, George Washington and some of the others, they were very, especially George Washington, very divinely inspired because the origin of the country was a divine origin. All of that is important in the present moment because when, when we're in a situation where things seem to be sort of rolling out of control and people are saying, oh, we can't do this, we have to do that, you know, there's just all this um, anxi- anxious energy, you have to really go back deep inside and say, look, this is not, you know, we don't get to these points just by accident. There's a tremendous number of forces that are all playing themselves out together. And it's true, we'd rather send some of these terrorists to one of those dark astral hells where they can just fight it out with their mantric bombs, you know? And I think, you know, some of the people on this planet have escaped from those places. Uh, there was a very interesting, and this is just, you know, this is in the level totally of spiritual gossip, but um, <laughs> in Anne Catherine Emmerich's uh, book, which is, she was a, a saint of, in Germany a few centuries ago, and she had very detailed uh, visions of the life of Christ, which I find fascinating. Um, and she also had visions of when Jesus, after Jesus was crucified, he supposedly went, he went down to hell and then came up again. I don't really follow all the theology of it, but that's part of the story. And all of her visions follow the theology really well. So um, the church approves of her because she approves of the church. Um, but one of, the, one of the little vignettes of that was that when Jesus was down in hell and was talking to the devil or something like that, from the time that, that, that her vision was happening, she said at a certain point, which was the end of this century, that uh, a bunch of those demons were going to be let out for a while. And they were going to have an opportunity to sort of wreak havoc on earth that there was some kind of a deal going on where Satan was going to let some of them out and they would mess up our world at the end of this century. Isn't that interesting? Because, because that's what you really see. I mean, uh, someone like these terrorist people, they, they're really from lower astral hells and that's where they'll go back. They're, they're powerful, but they're demons. They're, they, when, we, don't, we don't have to be with them when we die. We get to be somewhere else. You know, That's the reassuring type, isn't it? I was thinking also... Um, that just all fanaticism and hatred is the same, whether it's white people hating black people or um, Nazis hating Jews or Islamics hating Americans or SRF disliking Ananda. You know, once you get into that concept that these people are different and God, God approves of my prejudice against them, it's really, it's just one level. It really doesn't make any difference what the face you put on it is, it's, it's dehumanizing so that you can destroy. And this is where all of the talk about, yes, America has its problems too, it doesn't really apply because the consciousness of Americans is not to dehumanize. I mean, of course, there's bigots and demons in every culture, but you know, the whole concept here is, is this extraordinary uh, 
valuing of individual lives, no matter what they are. That's the nature of our country. And, and so this, you really can see that the enemy is hatred. And you also can see how every little thing that we do that dehumanizes someone and makes them different and then we're justified in rejecting them is just in its own tiny way, just exactly the same thing. It's just, a, it's a much smaller scale of it where we choose ourselves and don't really understand another person's reality. It's very interesting to think of it that way. Uh, my father always, uh, he, he used to have an interest in the psychology of prejudice. I was remembering that today. I remember being raised up with the very thought I just expressed to you. I hadn't thought of it at all in years until this morning. He used to tell me that prejudiced people are concerned it all comes from in them and doesn't come from other people. You know, this was a, an important revelation at the time. Interesting. But also for us, we need to also be, the, the picture of these astral worlds and so on should also make us very, very courageous. Swamiji was saying when we were with him the last time, I don't, apropos of nothing that I remember, but he was just saying with so much force, he said it a number of times, that death is nothing. He said, it's nothing. It's just nothing. Nothing happens when you die. He kept saying that nothing happens when you die. You just don't escape from anything. You are just absolutely yourself in a slightly different form. But if we really can just really understand that, so much of fear is about, and the other side of it is, we fear being injured or being incapacitated. All of it because we have so deeply identified with this physical form. Just what he was saying, that we have this commitment to it. But the more we contemplate the astral worlds and the more we contemplate the causal worlds and the more we imagine ourselves in these very, very subtle realms and live in this one from that one, it just, it's just so much freer. What is there to be afraid of? You know, things could happen to us and they might frighten us and other people could suffer, but the only way out of it is just to step back. You're always safe when you're in the Aum. You know, just if you're in the Aum vibration and the essence of the power behind it, um, that's what Master always said, just go into the Aum or think a very a good practice for us in the months and even years ahead is just really to practice the Aum technique more to go into the Aum. There's this wonderful song, actually right out of uh, Cosmic Chants, which we don't, we don't sing very much. It's the Aum song. Those of you who were at Ananda Village this summer heard Jeannie singing a marvelous version of it. Well, I'm on a little campaign to get it into our world here. Yeah, not just, not just as Jeannie did it as this beautiful musical piece, but we need to do it as a chant because it's an anthem. You know, we were sort of looking for an anthem. We sang... America the Beautiful. You know, just we, we want something that stirs us. This song really is really stirring like that. It's, a, it's an amazing uh, anthem is the only word I can think of. But it's an anthem about going into the Aum. And I thought, if we really need something to make us strong, and patriotism is nice, and we need to be supportive of our country, but our power is going to be the power of the Aum. Because the power of the Om is, the, is the, both the unifying and the transcending power. That's the unifying vibration of all of creation. We go into the Om and nothing can touch us. So I'm wanting to get Robert really into this song and uh, 
you know, have us all really learn it and really sing it with power and let it, let it take us through the coming times. And meditate on this chapter, Yogananda, tell everyone. Why did he want us to tell everyone? Why did he want him to tell everyone? Because if we know the nature of life, we can live it so much more joyously. You know, that's all that this is about. The whole autobiography is about us. It's just about our self-realization and us having the courage and the determination. The other side of it is just, oh, here we go again. Astral world for 700 years, planet Earth for 70 more, astral world for 700, you know. Just like, oh gosh, will this never end? Well, it will, but only when we become absolutely determined to transcend everything. And it's there to happen. All the tools are in our hands. It's just up to us now to put forward the energy. Harida said something so sweet once. He said, it's awfully good to know that my self-realization will help others because you know otherwise I wouldn't really be motivated to do it. <laughs> and that's, it's, it's, it's a very good motivation. The stronger we are in the divine consciousness, the more we can ease the suffering of others. And even if we're not afraid of our own, a lot of us are very afraid of other people's suffering. And so there's only one answer to it, which is personal strength. And a, a real commitment to live our lives according to what we really know. So, that's my story. That's the end of Autobiography of a Yogi. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for a wonderful series. It was fun.